If it's been a while since you've seen the sights on old Route 66, you'll be surprised by how much things are changing, like in Oklahoma City. New energy, bringing new energy into having these revitalized neighborhoods, not just one or two, but like half a dozen. Coming up, Robert Reed tells us what's cool about the recent changes to his home state's largest city. Don Wallace explains how paradise is getting a makeover lately in Honolulu. And he recommends places where you can join the locals for fun and explains why Oahu's classic sites are not to be overlooked. I think every American, even no matter how cynical or jaded, will find themselves amazed by visiting Pearl Harbor, will find themselves moved. And Jay Nichols reveals why so many of us want to spend time near the water. We can get our blue minds on uh, by a swimming pool in our own bathtubs. We can do it by an ocean. We can do it by a lake, a river, or even a pond. It's like beach time for your mind in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a good reason so many people head for the shore for a little R&R. Coming up in the hour ahead, Jay Nichols explains the science he's uncovered behind the positive effect of being around water. And author Don Wallace takes us inside his city, Honolulu, with tips for things to enjoy like the locals do when your sunburn tells you you've had enough time at the beach. And while it's built on cattle and oil, Robert Reed joins us now to tell us how Oklahoma City's looking mighty pretty lately with an expanding arts and culture scene to complement its status as a big league basketball and soccer town. Robert writes as the offbeat observer for National Geographic Traveler, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explain how Oklahoma City is becoming a popular visitor destination. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. So Oklahoma City, it's not high on a lot of people's lists, but people who go there really are charmed by it. What is it about Oklahoma City that makes it worth considering if we're traveling? Well, uh, it it is in the way of a lot of road trips because, of course, Route 66 goes through there. Three interstates cut through there. So a lot of people find themselves going through Oklahoma City, whether they plan to or not. And what's happened is, is I grew up in Tulsa, first of all. Mm -hmm. And so Tulsa is in the eastern part of the state. And we used to grow up thinking, gosh, so lucky. We don't live in Oklahoma City. (laughs) (laughs) Tulsa is this green. It's got hills. It had art. You know, it had foreign movies and Thai food. And it felt like this sophisticated cultural city, whereas Oklahoma City, the capital, was kind of a cow town. It's where the plains open up. It gets brown. It's windier. There's not as many trees. It's flatter. And so what's happened is, is Oklahoma City, in the last 20 years, gradually, and with increasing energy, has just redefined itself. They've, hmm. they've passed a series of like these sales taxes that is manifested in all kinds of things that has brought this, this energy that you find in like in an Austin or a Portland, Oregon or something – around its downtown and neighborhoods around it. So people finding, you know, surprising food, surprising kind of shopping and coffee and activities are finding a lot to stay in Oklahoma City. You get off the interstate for two, five, six hours, a day or two, there's plenty to do. Whereas, seriously, 15, 20 years ago, it was a completely different scenario. Now, you mentioned new sales taxes, meaning Mm -hmm. they had some money to invest in the city. This just seems almost like a contradiction in Oklahoma, but is it actually, what's an example? They've taxed their locals so they can have a nicer mm-hmm. city. How does that work out? It is surprising. There's no doubt about it. I mean, in Is it generally recognized as a, as a smart idea? Yeah, it's been very popular. In fact, Tulsa has, has followed suit. In 1993, they started what was called MAPS, and they're these sales tax initiatives of a one-cent sales tax. That's led to you know, moving the art museum for a remote area into this kind of art deco type space downtown mm-hmm. and having a new library and developing the brick town and putting a dome on the Capitol building. There was never a dome on it. They kind of forgot to build it when it oh, was originally wow. built. All kinds of things like a new history museum and, and, and the North Canadian River now has water in it and bike lanes and a, and a yacht club. All kinds of things that have happened through that sales tax. So they've done three of those initiatives that's totaled about $1.5 billion. So it's been quite a big thing that has led to all of this. And it's just kind of manifested itself into new energy, bringing new energy into having these revitalized neighborhoods, not just one or two but like half a dozen. And so this whole vast area around downtown where the interstates meet is now a place that people actually go to after hours where it never was before. It sounds like a success story. And if you haven't been to Oklahoma in a couple decades, it's time to check it out again. It really is. I mean, I think that a lot of people, it does have this notion of the cow town. It has a, has a huge stockyards, which are still there a little west of downtown. You go on Monday and Tuesday, you walk over these planks over the sea of cows and into this bidding auction and 
guys with cowboy hats and these 1976 phones at their chairs are watching this little amphitheater as the cows come through. It's really fun. You can get like cobbler and sit there if you don't mind the smell of cows. So there's elements of the cowboy culture that are still there. The Cowboy Hall of Fame is in Oklahoma City. It's probably the, you know, in some ways the most enduring and beloved attraction. But what you see is this these kind of neighborhoods where you have these, you know, coffee roasters and architect firms and, and different food truck zones. Robert, before we get into the trendy Oklahoma City, I'm intrigued by the <laughs> livestock part. So let's let's go to trendy in a minute. But what a great idea. Because I mean of course. I mean I mean it's great that Oklahoma City has bike lanes now and fancy coffee mm-hmm. coffee shops, but the largest livestock market in the world. So that is wide open for tourists and visitors, and you can complement that with a visit to the Cowboy Hall of Fame? Yes. The, the stockyard's a couple miles southwest of downtown. You go there, there's a cattleman's steakhouse where you can try, you know, the uh, Rocky Mountain oysters or calf fries, as they call them there, uh, if you so choose, a part of the cow that some of people have never tried. Uh, there's a lot of Western wear shops, but the stockyards themselves is this kind of small building with that you, you you literally walk on planks over the cows waiting in pens to be sold there. And it's like Monday and Tuesday mornings usually that you go there and it is you're just free to walk in, get some cobbler, sit, you know, be careful because if you get carried away, you may end up with a cow. First, you'll have some nicely uh, cooked testicles. And then, and then <laughs> yes. you'll and then you'll have the smell of all these cows going to the slaughterhouse below you, and then you'll have your cobbler. Yeah, the cobbler's the chaser, <laughs> the testicles the chaser. are the starter. That sounds fun. Okay, so that's your traditional. And by the way, Oklahoma City is one of the uh, younger cities uh, around, isn't it? Well, Oklahoma City was settled overnight in 1889. You know, there's the Oklahoma land rush, and there was a series of land rushes where they just opened it up. Oklahoma, what's interesting is, is that it was unclaimed for a while. It was Indian Territory for a while, then Oklahoma Territory, when everything around it was a state. So you think about how unusual the U.S. shape was at that time, because it's a panhandle shape, so it was very kind of cavity in the country, essentially. I was was at, it was one of the most interesting experiences in my American travels. I was just at the border of Oklahoma on the east. Is it Fort Wayne there or something? And, And Fort Smith? Fort Smith, yeah. And there's a bridge, and the big deal there is the land rush in 1889. And I can just picture all the people there, and they blew the whistle or they set off the firecracker or whatever, and 10,000 settlers just scrambled into the West and staked out the free land in Oklahoma, and bam, you've got yourself a, a settled state. Yeah, there was a, a series of those kind of land rushes, and one was that, that created Oklahoma City. I mean, some people went by bicycles. Can you yeah. imagine that, you know, going around a bicycle in 1889? But some people broke the rules and went a day earlier. So they oh. went sooner than they were supposed to. And that's why Oklahoma is called the Sooner State. Essentially, the criminals that broke the rules on the, the land Sooners. rush is what the nickname's <laughs> <the laughs> for. I didn't know that. I, I didn't yeah. know that. Travel writer Robert Reed's making a return appearance with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how Oklahoma City is becoming a major league destination. You'll find links to his latest travel articles and a message board for posting your own travel observations in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Oklahoma has the largest Native American population per capita, I believe, in the country. What per impact, capita, yes. What impact does that have on your, your sightseeing? Are, are there ways we can uh, check into Native American culture? Absolutely. Uh, th- there has been a long talk of Oklahoma City having a Native American museum, there, and the biggest Native American powwow is there in summer called Red Earth. And other places to go, I'm a big fan of going to the Osage Nation, which is uh, Osage County in the northeastern part of the state. It's near Bartlesville, where Philip 66 was based. There was a lot of oil there. And the Osage Hills are a really beautiful area. Bob Wills, who's a Western swing star in the 30s and 40s in Tulsa, sung about the Osage Hills. Hmm. And you can go there to Pahuska and go through a little museum there and take scenic rides around there. Another place is Tahlequah, which is kind of the center of the Cherokee Nation which came on the Trail of Tears, uh, kind mm. of a sad story in the 19th century. But they have a museum and a cultural center and some events that is around Tahlequah in the eastern part of the country. There are a lot of ways to engage with Native American culture in Oklahoma, but those are two standouts. You know, I've gone time and time again when I've gone back. So we've got Native American sites, we've got cowboy culture, we've got trendy, the new Oklahoma that's come about after its uh, decision to raise a little money and invest in the city. And, uh, of course, we've got the very powerful uh, memorial for the the bombing in 1995. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, that's near the area that is Midtown, where a lot of changes are happening now in Oklahoma City. And the bombing was in 1995. And the memorial there is really quite a moving site, where they have the 
the frame of the former Alfred P. Murrow building uh, kind of framed, and then you have chairs representing all of the victims there. It's a very somber sight. It's really amazing and powerful to go at night when it's lit up, and it really just kind of glows, and it, you just kind of can't forget it. I think they did a wonderful job with that. But that is in the heart of the Midtown area, just north of downtown. That is, I mean, they're talking about right now they've signed on to do a trolley that will go around. It's, it's to me, shocking to imagine public transportation of that kind in Oklahoma. But it's <laughs> going to be there by 2017, which is connecting these areas with these like salons and condos and boutique hotels and food truck centers. So that whole Midtown area where that memorial is has drastically changed in the last few years and will continue to the next couple. Oklahoma City is rated as a highly walkable city. What does that mean? I guess it depends on where you're walking and who's who's rating it. But but in terms of these neighborhoods of like Bricktown and Deep Deuce and Downtown mm-hmm. and Midtown, this is all in like a two-square-mile area where there is a lot in terms of restaurants and shops and museums and attractions and festivals and all kinds of things that are happening. That's mm-hmm. a walkable area. Mm-hmm. When you get, you know, the city is big. It's almost as big as like Los Angeles. It used to be like the second biggest in area in the country. So there are areas that are, it'd be a long walk, but I think what, why it rates high is because of the concentration of activity in that area right off the interstate. And when I visited, the first place my host took me was to the arena where our supersonics are now playing basketball for Oklahoma City. And they were very proud of that. They made sure that I knew that they were doing great in Oklahoma City. Sorry. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't like to see a team get robbed for another, but they have been uh, such a, you know, to be honest, Oklahoma City sees that as an endorsement and they call themselves big league city now. Ah, and it's right. like, oh my gosh, this is an endorsement that we are, we're real deal. So you it's know, a big league city. National... It's literally, a, it can support a big league team and it's doing well. I understand. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. great. And there's the Route 66 connection, which we can, when we visit Oklahoma City, we can tie in. Route 66, the the most surviving miles of original Mother Road, is in Oklahoma. And so there's a lot of ways to get on the two-lane road between Tulsa and Oklahoma City is a particularly scenic and wonderful part of it. When it goes through Oklahoma City, by the way, it goes through the heart of the so-called Asian district. The biggest Asian population in Oklahoma is the Vietnamese community, and they're centered in that area of Oklahoma City, now called Uptown a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if you follow Route 66 into Oklahoma City, you'll pass this big milk bottle that was there to give milk to people on Route 66 as they got in the city. That's now a Vietnamese sandwich place. And there's like mm-hmm. about a dozen pho beef noodle soup houses mm-hmm. around there. I've lived in Vietnam, and the Vietnamese food in Oklahoma City is very authentic and very surprising. I would say they give a better and more authentic and tasty you know, style of pho than I got in New York City, for oh, example. Right. So it's a good place to get some Vietnamese food. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Robert Reed. And Robert's uh, look for Robert's article on Oklahoma City and uh, National Geographic Traveler. And Robert's website is readontravel.com, R-E-I-D on travel.com. Robert Reed, thanks so much. And uh, I've been to Oklahoma City a couple of times, but with what we've learned in the last few minutes, I want to go back there. It sounds like it's just a city that is uh, really a happening place and, and more worth checking out. Be sure to try the testicles. <laughs> Even if you don't have an oceanfront view, there are plenty of ways being around the water can ease your state of mind. We'll explore that in just a bit. Up next, an insider's view on what's new in Honolulu. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. With its white sand beaches and swaying palm trees, Hawaii is often seen as a paradise. At the same time, its capital city, Honolulu, is a big city with its own set of stresses on everyday life. We're joined on Travel with Rick Steves now by author Don Wallace for a look at what people are talking about on Oahu. 
and maybe a few tips for what we visitors can look into away from the busy high-rises in Waikiki. Aloha, Don. Hi. Well, Rick, what's going on in Honolulu is sort of unruly. There's been an election. They have uh, thrown out the incumbent governor, and the reason is there's a feeling that there's been too much development, and there's been a giant wave of construction that's changing the city. Now, it's great that the people have risen up and want to slow this down, and in the meantime, it means for those who visit, there are some really good places that you should see and see now to escape, uh, I guess, what you might call the construction site feeling that you get in certain neighborhoods. So what exactly do the construction plans threaten? Well, a lot of it is just simply adding in condominiums, and a lot of these condominiums are for Chinese investors and outside investors. And what that means is um, highways are closed, um, you get 29-story buildings popping up, Hmm. and they've choked off one neighborhood that was going to become the Brooklyn of Honolulu. It was called Kaka'ako. And Kaka'ako really has a happening scene it has food trucks in a thing called Eat the Street. It had arts. A thing called who Eat the Street? Eat the Street. Tell me about everyone that. In that Hon- sounds good. Everyone in Honolulu knows about Eat the Street. And it's, it's a rally of food trucks. Go to the website, Eat the Street, and they'll tell you where they're gathering, and you'll, you'll get 20 or 30 food trucks. It becomes quite a party at night. The theme can vary. There'll be themes to the food and themes to the entertainment. Wow. Now, you talked also about this influx of... Uh, population from Asia. Are these wealthy people from Hong Kong or China that just want stability in their future and they've got enough money to make that move? Well, it's really investment property. Um, From what I understand, Shanghai and a lot of China have a lot of construction towers uh, that build these apartments and they call them see-throughs because no one ever lives in them. They're simply a place to park the money. And that's because you can't simply uh, collect interest on investments in hmm. China. So what they're doing is they're driving investment all over the country. New so York they're parking well as, their money in Hawaii, buying buildings yeah. that there's not even a market for and messing up right. local neighborhoods. I think it's too late to stop a lot of the construction, but a lot of it was inevitable anyway, mm-hmm. the way that modern times tends to bring uh, more and more. But what we've got in Hawaii are some neighborhoods like Kaimuki and Chinatown which have not been touched by the construction. And because the construction is forcing the creative people into these neighborhoods, they're becoming more and more exciting, more and more interesting. Now, it sounds like Chinatown is sort of really a a vibrant arts center and and stubbornly surviving all the change around it. I I think stubborn is a very good word. You know, Chinatown was even in the center of World War II. Imagine being swarmed with three million GIs in four years. It's a very colorful place, but at the same time, and it's kind of a warning, it's funky. Mm-hmm. It's real. Mm-hmm. Um, it can even get smelly if it hasn't rained in a while. But what is great about it is they're not really paying attention to the tourists. So you can walk around and see good dim sum. You'll see laymakers and sellers on the corner, roast duck shops, dive bars, tattoo parlors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chinatown is really the epicenter of the whole tattoo movement which started really in World War II with Sailor Jerry. So when you see people all getting their tattoos today, it really originates from this one very funky neighborhood in Honolulu. Wow. I'm talking with uh, Don Wallace. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about his hometown, Honolulu. We've got some calls coming in here. at uh, Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Before I get to the calls, I'm just going to say a famous site, and I'd just like to get your quick take on that, because when we fly to, a lot of times we fly to Honolulu, heading off to a smaller island, and we want to just do some quick sightseeing in the, in the sightseeing center. What's your take on visiting Pearl Harbor? Well, you know, I think every American will, even no matter how cynical or jaded, will find themselves amazed by visiting Pearl Harbor, will find themselves moved. Mm -hmm. There's been a really um, excellent renovation done of the facilities and the museum that is there. It's a museum not just of Pearl Harbor, the attack on December 7th. It's a museum of life as it was Mm -hmm. lived during the war years in Hawaii. What about Diamond Head? You live in the area of Diamond Head. Uh, Great place for hiking. Uh, How do you enjoy Diamond Head? I would say the first thing you do when you arrive in Honolulu, wake up, make a left from your hotel, and hike up Diamond Head. Uh, do it early in the morning. There's You can enter the crater from the backside and hike all the way up to the uh, the overlook. 760 sort of feet desert. above the ocean on the lip of a crater, of a volcanic crater. Wow. That's right. So step out of your hotel, turn left, and go to the top of the mountain. Right. Left. Left. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. What about Waikiki? 
Waikiki is really quite, Kalakaua um, running down the waterfront is one of the great esplanades. And you can just walk along one of the great surfing beaches in history. It's where surfing really took off. Duke Kahanamoku brought it to um, the world. It's beautiful and you just keep going, I'd say, in a left direction, as I said. And yeah. you'll find outdoor cafes. Sounds great. Um, you'll find an aquarium. Duke Kahanamoku brought it life. to the world. What do you mean? How, how did that happen? Well, Duke Kahanamoku, besides being an Olympic swimmer, was size 13 feet. He popularized surfing all around the world. He would travel as far as Biarritz in France to Australia. He went to Long Beach, California in the 30s where my father saw him take a plank, fashion a surfboard, go out and surf. And what he did was he seeded surfing all the way to Peru where they have a a Duke Kamahanamoku club. What decade would that have been? That was the 30s. In the 30s, Um, all right. Yeah, in the 20s. Late 20s and 30s, surfing traveled around the world. And um, Duke Kahanamoku did an amazing job because he was a very personable, well-spoken, and absolutely charismatic man. All right. The grandfather of surfing. What about, uh, there's a lot of history in Hawaii. You've got the Bishop Museum and you've got the old mission houses. Mm -hmm. To learn the Hawaiian culture from the inside by going in and seeing their things and their food their foods, eating at a local Hawaiian restaurant like Ono Hawaiian, Hailey's, or Fort Ruger. And then you look at the islands where they lived, a culture completely separate from the world for about 600 years. In other words, a pristine, uninterrupted culture. So you go to the Bishop Museum and you see how people would adapt. And in some respects, it's sort of like if we sent people to Mars and then left them alone for 600 years. It's really fascinating stuff. And the Hawaiians were very creative and they had to be very spiritual to hold their society together. And it's still a very spiritual place, Hawaii. It's still, the Hawaiian culture is very strong and it's getting stronger. So I would recommend the Bishop Museum. I would recommend um, also the Honolulu Museum of Art, which is um, Mm -hmm. near Chinatown. And um, I would say go to Waimea Bay on the North Shore and go into the Waimea Valley, which is a Hawaiian cultural center. And you sort of get to see how it was practiced back in the day. So it's more the resilience of the traditional culture is just quite amazing. And as kids, a lot of us went over there and saw the Kodak Hula Show at the Polynesian Center. And that was just kind of a fun hula kind of action for your camera. But take it seriously. Go to these museums and, and as you said, 600 years of isolation and evolution. It's, it's quite an impressive culture. What about the old mission houses? Well, you can go to the, um, the only royal palace in the United States, which is the Iolani Palace, and you'll be able to see a Victorian-style gingerbread palace that was lived in by Hawaiian royalty. Queen uh, Liliuokalani was overthrown in 1893. The only royal and, palace in the United States. I never thought about that. That makes sense. Right. And, you know, to the Hawaiians, royalty is not like Downton Abbey. It's right now. They still have a royal family, and they still have a very strong belief that they're entitled to come back and um, take a larger share of control over these islands. And um, that's one of the really fascinating things about Hawaii is it's, it's not dead history, it's living. Right. And it's, it's uh, mutating as we go along. Journalist and author Don Wallace is telling us about recent trends in Honolulu right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Don contributes to major publications. He's written a couple of novels, and his latest book is about his family's crazy adventures when they renovated a ruined house on a small island in France. It's called The French House, an American family, a ruined maison, and the village that restored them all. There's more on his website, don-wallace.com, and he'll be back on the show in a couple of months to talk about that. But Don and his wife have returned to their family home in Honolulu, and he's here to take your calls at 877-333-7425 about what's new on Oahu. Scott's on the line from Reno, Nevada. Hi, Scott. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Don, great to speak with you. Uh, My question involves um, whether to rent a car on Oahu. Um, One of the challenges that my wife and I always struggle with, parking seems to be atrociously expensive, um, Honolulu and Waikiki in particular. And there are so many other great parts of the island to go to, um, Kualoa, Kualoa Valley. We're wondering if the new rail system um, that's under construction is going to maybe ease some of that and maybe make it possible to access some other parts of the island without having to rent a car. Well, I think the rail system, although it, it is scheduled to open, I think, in 2020, is one of those projects that was built to serve an urban core and to concentrate people who actually live in Hawaii and take cars off the road. And it's it's a bit controversial because 
it's taken some farmland that was not going to be developed, and it doesn't actually go into Waikiki, nor does it go to the airport. And I suppose there were entrenched interests who made sure of, of that, uh, perhaps. So I don't think rail is going to solve the problem. It may help the west side, which is uh, very congested with traffic. I would say rent your car to go outside of Waikiki, but don't bother to have a car if you're just going to stay in Waikiki. All right. That sounds like a great tip. Thanks very much. Thanks well, for your... Thank you, Scott. And Keiko is on the line in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hello, Keiko. Hi. Um, I'm a home-based travel agent and just specialize uh, Hawaii vacation. So I know a little bit about Hawaii, but I start to thinking about the move to Honolulu area. Then I'm a little bit concerned about the um, price to living, very expensive. So, How does the cost of living, Don, relate in, because in, you've lived in different places uh, in the, on the continent, mm-hmm. uh, how does it compare in Honolulu to the United States, the rest of the United States? Well, you know, they just had some recent studies that show that Honolulu has actually got the worst differential between uh, wages and cost of living. In other words, you're, mm. you're pretty tightly squeezed. I lived in New York City, and I would say um, grocery costs are similar. Housing costs are very high because they just can't fit in the workers and the second homeowners and the tourists who want fancier accommodations. So you might run into rents that are in the uh, 2000 to 3000 a month range just to get a, a, a simple place that's pretty far from Honolulu. Mm. Mm, mm. I see. Um, which side of the island is the best uh, living, do you think? I think if you're going to work mm-hmm. and, and you have to be in the, in the center of town, Honolulu, you have to live uh, on that south shore of Honolulu. On the other hand, if you can do your work through a computer, the internet, or telephone, um, I would live out in the North Shore. Sounds great. Well, Keiko, I hope you can figure that out, because uh, if you can afford it, I'm sure it's a beautiful place to live. Yes. I'm a Japanese, so I'm drifting of it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you yes. for your call. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, Keiko. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don Wallace. Uh, Don's a wonderful travel writer. His latest book is called The French House, talking about him uh, and his family buying a house in Brittany and fixing it up. Fascinating insight into that culture. And today he's joining us to talk about his hometown of Honolulu. You know, a lot of times now we can fly directly to some of the other islands. And for some people that's a blessing because you don't have to deal with Honolulu. On the other hand, uh, you're missing the most important city in Hawaii. What's your thought on flying directly to the other islands or having a stopover in Honolulu? Well, we have a lot of friends who used to just go straight to Kauai or um, Maui. And now they've started adding Honolulu because it's a civilization. It has things in a concentration you can't find, particularly in Kauai, which is quite rural. So if you want to go to a museum or you want to go to a nice um, restaurant, and not just one restaurant, Mm -hmm. um, Honolulu is the place to do it. I also say it's become um, really good for sports, like if you want to do parasailing, if you want to do surfing, if you want to golf, if you're a runner or an athlete of that type, you know, Honolulu can kind of wrap it all up and give it to you. And finally, what Honolulu has is that fabulous North Shore, which uh, has not only the giant surf, which is happening in February through March, April, it's the equivalent of being at the Super Bowl. Uh, you don't have to buy a ticket. You just drive out to the North Shore, and if the surf is pumping, you're sort of in a world-class sporting environment. That's something that I've always recommended to everyone, and people are absolutely um, blown away by it. So what's the season for surfing on the North Shore of Oahu? The big north swells start uh, late November, December, okay. and then they really pump. And, you know, the one thing you can't do is expect to go out there and go swimming unless it's dead flat and the lifeguard says it's safe. <laughs> But basically, December through April, if the surf's up and you're in Oahu, head to the North Shore and you've got quite a spectacle. Yeah. And you've got turtles. The beaches are extraordinary. What are the Um, pros and cons of different times of year for visiting Hawaii? Well, you know, I think it depends what you're looking for. I first visited when I was a 16-year-old. I would say to any teenager, obviously you're on summer vacation, it's paradise. Uh, It's young people. It's sun. It's ocean. Everyone's in bathing suits. And you're eating all this crazy food. So, you know, I would, I would always say visit Hawaii in the summer with the kids um, because they really should experience it. Mm-hmm. I think, strangely enough, the, one of the most, what you might think, logical times, December, 
is a bit iffy because you get a really serious um, possibility of heavy rainstorms. Uh, they're called the Pineapple Express. Hmm. And there's nothing like being in the tropics with it raining 24-7. So I would say I always kind of hedge your bets if you're coming at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at the weather patterns and uh, make sure they're not having an El Nino. All right. And Don, let's just close it off with talking about this concept of living like a local. What's the word? Kamaaina. Kamaaina. When you go there, how, how can you, without being ridiculous, but how can you embrace the, the local culture and just feel like you're having a real, a real Hawaiian experience? What's your best tip? Well, I would say um, Hawaiians always say listen before you speak. It's a polite culture and it's a deferential culture. So, you know, I'd say you, you don't barge into situations. I would also say appreciate the culture by, by going and seeking out Hawaiian music, which definitely needs support. And you can hear it in Waikiki, Cyril Pahanui has his kind of kapila sessions. Go to the museum and, and take a little of it in. Don't just, uh, you know, plug in your Walkman or your iPod and walk around. And finally, I would go to the restaurants. I would go to Haile's, Ono Hawaiian or Fort Ruger. These are very humble places. They turn out the classic lao lao, lomi salmon, poi. Don't turn up your nose at poi. Just add the lomi salmon to it, and it goes down a lot easier. <laughs> I was going to say, when you said poi, I sort of reeled back, but you can actually uh, garnish it and make it sort of like a... It's like glue. glue. It's okay, like there's glue. no way. <laughs> it's but, like glue. Okay. But I will say, I will say this. Uh, the people here, like my wife is an utter fanatic, you know, whether it's for one day poi, two day poi, gets sour on the third day. Then she bakes with it. She makes biscuits and cakes and pancakes with poi. You know, learn to love poi, even if you don't love it, and you'll make a friend. To talk lovingly about poi, that gets you into the club, I'm sure. It could, it could. <laughs> the, other thing is, the other thing is, I would say, you know, get into ramen, try ramen uh, from that point of view, and go to Kaimaki, go to 12th Avenue in Wailai, and go to the Cocoa Head Cafe and try one of their amazing brunches. It's a wonderful world you have out there. Wow. Sounds uh, good. You've got me thinking, Don. Thank you so much. Uh, this is... a. Uh, This is so fun to talk about Honolulu with somebody who really, well, who loves poi. Don Wallace, aloha. Aloha, and thank you. Don Wallace blogs about life and his latest book, The French House, at don-wallace.com. Whether it's fabulous beaches or mountain waterfalls, you're never far from the water in Honolulu. What's it like where you live? Up next, author Wallace J. Nichols explains the science behind the therapeutic benefits of being by the water, even if you're nowhere near a sandy beach. 877-333-7425 is our phone number. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Is there something that compels you to be near the water? I'm Rick Steves, and for some reason, my gut seems to tell me that I need to live near the water in order to be happy. Our next guest has an answer for that. Dr. Wallace J. Nichols is a research associate at the California Academy of Sciences. Recent advances in neuroscientific research are offering new explanations for age-old beliefs about the impact on humans of being near water. He outlines how being around water can reduce stress and change the way we think in his book called Blue Mind. Jay, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about this whole concept of blue mind and and the importance of water for our well-being. It is a very intuitive idea that water makes us feel good, that water makes us happy, helps us relax. And, And I guess you could say that I'm Captain Obvious in writing this book. But I wanted to go deeper and I wanted to ask 
about the physiology and about the biology and the evolutionary theory behind that feeling. And when I started digging in, I found that A, this book hadn't been written before, and B, these very simple questions really hadn't been asked and struggled with before. So it began this five-year journey into our blue minds, if you will, and trying to figure this out. And that brought me face-to-face with big wave surfers and people with the last name Cousteau. And it brought me into the labs of neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists and psychologists learning about our brains on water. Now you talk about red mind versus blue mind. And you can kind of imagine red mind is our intense, on-the-ball, eager, aggressive mindset, and blue mind sort of counters that. Uh, How does that relate to water, and and how do you define red mind and blue mind? Red mind is the state that we find ourselves in a lot of the time these days, and it's the kind of always-on, always-connected, busy, active, listening, processing mode of of just our modern lives. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing. You know, red mind's not bad, but if you live a life that's entirely red mind, eventually things are going to fall apart. You're literally on the cellular level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it stresses us out. And, and you're talking and about sick. fall apart neurologically and biologically. I mean, there's actual physiological problems with not having blue mind in your approach to life. Psychologists and neuroscientists call it toxic stress. And that's where huh. you've just got too much stress for too long that you, you literally become ill. Your body system stops working properly. And one of the solutions to that situation is, is what I call blue mind. It's just disconnecting, unplugging, mm-hmm. and moving towards a big body of water, mm-hmm. getting in it if the conditions are right, and really just letting your, your mind wander, letting your heart rate slow and your breathing rate slow down. Mm-hmm. And you literally switch to a different brain network, a different yeah. mode. In your book, you write, uh, being with water is the fastest way to hit the reset button. And, and physiologically, you're, you're, that's exactly what's happening. You're, you're breaking out of that rat race and, and resetting. That's right. And it, it really is a good metaphor, the, the big blue reset button. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I experience it personally, and I'm sure travelers of all shapes and sizes, yeah. including my kids, experience it as often as possible. Jay, is blue mind your term, or is that an accepted term in this field? Well, that's a term I came up with to describe this mildly meditative, relaxed state of mind, yes. Now, if you live in a landlocked concrete world, are you saying when you go on vacation, it's it's healthy for you to choose a vacation place that has water? Each of us will probably answer that question differently. I I talk to people and they say, well, I'm not really an ocean person. I'm more of a mountain person. And my answer to them is, yeah, but don't you love those mountains more if there's a lake or a river? or even just a little creek up there? And their answer is usually yes. So we can get our blue minds on uh, by a swimming pool in our own bathtubs. We can do it by an ocean. We can do it by a lake, river, or even a pond. And whatever it is that works for you is what I would recommend. You know, there's a lot of ways that people, probably without even having any recognition of the whole blue mind concept or the importance of water, they just gravitate to water. You have a a little a plug-in fountain uh, in your garden, or you have a koi pond, or you have a hot tub, or you have even a soundtrack. Can a soundtrack of, of the ocean do the same sort of uh, beneficial effect? Yeah, people play water sounds, whether it's rain or a running creek or the sound of the surf to help relax, to help go to sleep even. And it's the number one downloaded sleep aid in terms of these these sound apps. So yeah, you can create Blue Mind without having any actual water around. And art is even very useful. A painting that is um, of a place you love or by an artist you admire, a photograph hmm. on the wall, a poster of a, of a whale or a dolphin or whatever it is that mm-hmm. puts you in that state of mind is maybe activates your nostalgia, your set of you know, highly emotional memories. Uh, this is a travel show. Uh, you're an expert in the value of water. Why don't you be our water vacation counselor? <laughs> for you, what are the best water sites? What's a great place for you and, and your need for being near water to go? Well, the first one that comes to mind is is a secret beach that I can't tell you about, so I, I won't go there. I'll just skip over that, but it's not too far from my house. And, and I guess maybe that's to say, you know, that spot that you can get to uh, any day of the week or any weekend. That okay, everybody, is... a beach in Santa Cruz. Go to Santa Cruz yeah, and right. find a little beach and look for the man <laughs> who wrote Blue Mind, okay? <laughs> I'll see you there. Yeah. But 
I spent a lot of time traveling in Mexico, in Baja, California. Mm. And that's an interesting place because it's got the, the desert and the lack of water juxtaposed with mm-hmm. a beautiful ocean. Mm. And there are lots of solitary beaches and fishing communities that I spend time in uh, traveling in, in northwestern Mexico. And I find that to be one of the great places. I'm lucky with my work. I get to go to be all alone in front of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. I can go to the top of this mountain or the top of this skyscraper or tower just because it's my work. And if I think of the most joyful moment, it's just me and the sound of water sloshing around my head as I'm snorkeling and looking through goggles at little fish in any ocean beach with nice water life. I become lost in that wonderful world, and I think my whole body is is recharging. It's resetting in a way that I, I didn't even put my finger on until this conversation. But that is the experience that brings me so much joy. And it's that sloshing with the world of water. Me too. <laughs> That's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Wallace J. Nichols has collected his research on how being near, in, on, or even underwater can make you happier, healthier, more connected, and better at what you do. It's all in his book, Blue Mind. It's published by Little Brown. His website is wallacejnichols.org. By the way, Jay's joining us from the studios of KUSP in Santa Cruz, just a block from the beach on Monterey Bay, and our Travel with Rick Steve studios are a couple of blocks from Puget Sound near Seattle. Our number is 877-333-7425. And Bill joins us on the phone from Santa Clara, California. Hi, Bill. Hi. Hi need water therapy. I grew up in Massachusetts Bay, and uh, now I'm retired, and I live in Silicon Valley, which is, as you might get from the name, is not a wet place. And I really ache for the, the, the ocean, but I'm six miles away and I don't drive. I, I haven't yet gone there. I've retired, but I haven't yet gone to the ocean here. And uh, that's very strange for me, who was could get on my bicycle when I was a kid and just ride about a mile and I'd be right at the ocean side. Uh, I need water therapy. Why don't you go to the ocean? It's just six miles away. Uh, I don't drive. Oh, okay. And there's no bus. Oh. I'll come pick you up and I'll take <laughs> you to that beach that <laughs> I, I, really? I... You need a koi Absolutely. Pond. Bill, it is interesting that you have this strong sense that you need water. It's oh, not, I do. It's not just you need something. I mean, I can imagine somebody thinks, oh, I need something. It's just I'm missing something. But you know what you're missing. You're missing water. California is in extreme drought conditions, and where I live is very, very dry. Yeah. And so that just adds to my uh, need with uh, external validation is that it's, it's not just in my mind. It's true. Everybody here is desperate for water. Now, Jay, it seems like a sorry excuse for a seashore, but if you are, for whatever reason, landlocked, what can you do in your own domestic environment uh, that, that would make a difference? What would you do for water therapy? Well, you know, if you have a bathtub use it. I would say in, in the drought conditions we have in California, perhaps share your bath, uh, which is this a fun is thing to do. Uh, half full baths here now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, half full Water. baths. And sh- uh, I drop some sea salt in it, uh, dim the lights, put on your, your favorite watery music or water soundtrack and just chill. I mean, that's probably a, a really easy thing to do. Maybe everybody else has probably discovered this already, but I just found in Spotify, you know, you can get any soundtrack you want and you've got all sorts of... Uh, sea sounds and sounds of nature. You could easily go there and find a, a, a water soundtrack. Yeah, if you look at ocean sounds on YouTube, you'll get uh, you know even 12 hours of nonstop natural ocean sounds that will just play with, a, with an ocean video going. So obviously I, I don't believe that that's a, a pure replacement for mm-hmm. the ocean itself. But it helps. But if it helps, certainly. Uh, I'd never have thought of that. Thank you. Bill, thanks for your call. And uh, Catherine's on the line in Cambridge, Ontario. Catherine, thanks for your call. Yeah, I had a couple of questions. Um, I was wondering if, Dr. Nichols, your research uncovered a difference between salt and freshwater on human well-being? Yeah, so you're going to find a difference between an experience with a river or a lake and the ocean because of the salt. You're also going to find a difference um, because of the vastness and you know, what psychologists refer to as the awe factor. Mm. So when you're, when you're standing at, a, at an ocean which tends to be salty, the massive size of it and perhaps the sunrise or the sunset over the water can drive you to experience a a feeling of awe that's quite profound and quite wondrous. Not to say that lakes and rivers don't also do that, but there's a 
a scale difference that comes into play. You know, Jay, I would I would imagine a walk on the beach has the same awe factor. A walk on a lake beach would be nice, but a walk on an ocean beach would probably be uh, more awesome. Yeah, there's a you know there's a continuum, but also you know the the content of the ocean having salt and other minerals dissolved in it is is a factor. So the buoyancy is a factor. So your your experience of floating or swimming in the ocean is going to be vastly different than the one in, in freshwater. And then you're going to obviously carry that salt residue on your skin. And that salt has an antiseptic quality to it as well. So there are, are other beneficial factors that come from swimming in, in the salt water. And all of this depends on the water, in fact, being healthy and not polluted. Catherine, listening to our conversation, does that resonate with your personal just sort of gut feelings about the importance of water? Yes, it does. Uh, I've I studied biology in school, and I spent the last eight months doing a, a research project in aquatic ecology, so I'm full aware of the important implications of the, how we need to conserve our water and everything like that. But the reason that I brought up the, uh, the difference between salt and fresh water is, um, as you mentioned, I'm from Cambridge, Ontario, which is about for your listeners that don't know, one hour west of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm within about a two-hour driving distance of three of the Great Lakes. Those, I think that anybody who's ever been to the Great Lakes, people could agree that they're extremely vast, and you can't exactly see the other side or anything. So I thought that it might have a similar sort of psychological effect as the ocean, aside from the salt, which I do agree that does play a factor. The smell of the ocean is just enough to mm-hmm. ease all of your tensions. <laughs> I love that. The smell of low tide and the sound of the surf. It's just beautiful. Catherine, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Okay, bye now. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Wallace J. Nichols. And uh, Jay has written a book called Blue Mind, talking about the importance of water, being near water, being in water or on water for our well-being. Speaking of therapy, you write about surf therapy. What is that? There are a number of organizations, such as this group called Operation Surf, that work with a range of people who are dealing with different kinds of stress or injuries or diseases or issues that limit their ability to function in in society. And what Operation Surf does is takes those people, equips them correctly, and gets them out on the water on some surfboards with expert instructors to spend the day or a number of days learning to surf and, and sometimes having really the time of their lives. Actually so, surfing. I, I would have thought they would just be frolicking in the in the surf, having the waves beat on them, but it's actually getting on a surfboard and surfing. Absolutely. And it, it's amazing to see that you know these these expert instructors at Operation Surf will surf on the same board with their students. So mm. some of the men and women that they surf with are missing arms or legs. Mm are unable to walk mm. because of a, of a disease or an illness or are dealing with a, other life circumstances that have gotten them really stressed out. And so they just have this incredible experience on, on these waves. All your pistons would just be going like mad. Your endorphins would just be giddy. It's life-changing. Yeah. And for many of their students, they after they've spent some time surfing, they say, I, I see my life differently. Yeah. I want to live. I want to live now, in a different way. Jay, this all sounds. Uh, some people might think of this as just a little new agey. You know, what is the hard science behind it all? Well, you know, as you just work through all of the different senses as they relate to water, uh, you can unpack the science. So, listening to the sound, well, that obviously connects to our brains through our ears. Looking at the water, that connects to our brains mm-hmm. through our eyes. Being in the water, that that brings in you know, the, the feeling of gravity and the parts of our brains that work on balance and keeping us upright and keeping mm-hmm. us uh, yeah. stable. So, And it's clear can, stress, is, stress is a killer and, and water decreases stress. Yeah, and the physiology of stress is very, very well studied these days. 20 years ago, to say that stress will make you sick, well, that, that might have been kind of a new idea. Right. <laughs> but now every medical practitioner on the planet understands that to be true. How is, how is water therapy uh, factored in with uh, PTSD uh, concerns when soldiers come home from Iraq, for instance? I try, not, I try to be careful. I don't promote blue mind therapy or water therapy as a silver bullet solution to anything. But what we've experienced with returning veterans and soldiers has been pretty, pretty amazing. For some people, hmm. it's really like medicine. It really gives them a new lease on life. It helps them relax. I know some men who got their their first full night of sleep after spending time in the ocean learning to surf uh, since they returned from active duty 
years prior. And so the gift of sleep, imagine that, mm. just finally being able to yes. to sleep well to the sound of the ocean, to have that, that exhausted, wonderful blue mind feeling uh, in bed at night and just to fall asleep for the first time uh, in two years is quite an amazing what thing. A, what and a blessing water would be in that regard. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Wallace J. Nichols, and uh, Jay has written a book, a fascinating book, called Blue Mind, talking about the importance of water just in, as we reset ourselves to have, maintain balance in our aggressive dog-eat-dog, uh, rat-race kind of world that a lot of us fall into. Jay, you, you wrote about a couple of concepts that just really resonated with me. You said, we fall more in love with each other at the shore. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I can. <laughs> and then it's always ourselves that we find in the sea. Well, let's just wrap it up with a, a bit of, where did those ideas come from? You know, there are scientists who study the science of awe. Uh, there's a guy named Paul Piff at UC Berkeley. I call him Dr. Awesome, but he studies the science of awe. And what they've found is that when we experience awe, whether it's from seeing a beautiful wild animal or a sunset over an ocean or floating down a river, it switches us from a, a me orientation to a we orientation. It changes our brains in a way that increases our empathy and boosts our compassion, connects us to those that we're with and connects us to the world around us. And I know that sounds really touchy-feely, but there's a biological basis to it, to that feeling. Of course there is. It doesn't just come from nowhere. It comes from within our brains. And empathy is good. Compassion is good. And if, if healthy water can be just another source of that kind of feeling of being connected to ourselves, to those that we're with, those that we love, and the world around us, then that's a good thing. Mm. Jay, it's been so much fun talking to you with you. I think I might even be getting a little bit of blue mind thinking about all this water and uh, just the thought of the beauty and, and the importance of, of going to the shore. Yeah, I get my blue mind just talking about it, so I'm with you right there. Yeah, it's like if you want to find yourself or even if you want somebody else to find yourself, find each other, we can all go to the shore. Wallace, Jay Nichols, thanks so much and best wishes with your book, Blue Mind. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Oh, fish, oh, flesh, oh, fish, oh, wing. It's a hawk, it's a dove, it's the promise of spring And the riverbank sings of the waters of March It's the end of despair, it's the joy in your heart Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help this week to OPB Portland, Hawaii Public Radio, and KUSP Santa Cruz. You can listen again on demand and find guest information and the details for each week's show. It's updated each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.